0: You're listening to The Soundgirls Girls Podcast with just Katie today. Today's interview features Darcy Proper. Darcy Proper is a four-time Grammy Award-winning mastering engineer whose work has covered everything from vintage reissues to cutting-edge immersive audio releases. She has had the pleasure of working for international artists such as Johnny Cash, Dave Brubeck, Tony Bennett, Steely Dan, The Eagles, Ozark Henry, Porcupine Tree, Peter Maffay, David Garrett, Jane Ira Bloom, Blind Guardian, and Halloween, just to name a few. Her career started off in NYC, followed by a 14-year stint in Europe, and now she's returned to the U.S. and looks forward to continuing her work here, closer to home. Hey, Darcy, welcome. Hey, Katie, nice to be here. Uh, So good to be here with you. Now, where are you at right now?
1: I'm sitting at Valhalla Studios, New York in Auburn, New York, which is in the central part of New York State. So, so not in the city, but in the Finger Lakes area.
0: So this is, this is where you go to work every day?
1: This is where I go to work every day, yeah. And my commute is six minutes long. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it really is. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's like the ideal life right there. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning. That's my always my first question. Why okay. sound? How did you find your way? To your career?
1: Well, I got started in audio uh, basically because I really loved music. So uh, when I was in middle school, junior high, and high school, I played clarinet and saxophone. And um, my grandma had an organ at her house. So I learned how to play that, you know, self taught, not really have any piano lessons or anything at that time, and sang in the church choir and, and, you know, all these sort of things. But I loved being in an ensemble, and I didn't like being in the spotlight. Uh, music was very personal for me. I was very shy about it. It wasn't easy for me to share it, except when I was playing as a group. So I, I think I recognized early on that I didn't have that drive. I didn't have that sort of innate talent to become a great musician. So I didn't know where any of this would lead, but I was I was good in math and science, uh, good in school generally, and uh, our high school band used to put on a rock and roll show uh, every year to fundraise for the band, you know, for new uniforms or new instruments. You know, some of the larger instruments were too expensive for, for people to to buy, you know, on their own. So the, the, the band itself had some that, that the students could use to learn how to play them. And um, for one of the rock and roll shows, there was somebody... Probably with a 12 channel or 16 channel Soundcraft or or similar, you know, uh, board to run the PA. And while I was waiting, you know, for my turn to do whatever I was doing, saxophone solo from the 50s or something like that, <laughs> I saw this this guy running this soundboard and saw the VU meters and and the lights and the buttons and you know and all the channels and. I was like, "Wow, that's really cool!" You know, so I spoke to him a little bit, and I said, "You know, what is this called? What is it that you do?" And he said, "Well, you know, this is sound engineering." You know, so then then I looked that up with my guidance counselor and tried to find some schools. Uh, this would have been in like 1989 that I would have started looking, tried to find some schools that had programs. There weren't very many, but uh, because I wanted to stay in New York State. There was NYU and there was SUNY at Fredonia. And so I checked out both of those places and ended up going to NYU. SUNY Fredonia had a great program, but I was from a small town in upstate New York, and I really wanted to go to the big city. And, um, And NYU offered a scholarship that allowed me to go there for less than it probably would have cost me to go to the state school. So to the city I went at the ripe old age of 17. And when I began my education in audio, I knew nothing other than how to put a record on my record player or plug in headphones to my cassette deck or anything like that. I had no background in audio whatsoever. And um, so they had a four-year program, a bachelor in music, and um, I sort of thought that I would leave school and get into research and development more Mm -hmm. than anything I didn't really see myself being an engineer. I don't I'm not even sure when I graduated if I knew what a mastering engineer was. Still, I had done internships all over New York in in live sound in a music publishing company. Uh, I had a job in a theater, the New York Public Theater. So I had some experience with sound and not very much experience in the studio. Mm and i guess my first full time audio position was as an assistant technician at soundworks studios in uh, in midtown on 54th street it was in the basement below where studio 54 was and that was my first real like studio experience so i was the assistant to the chief technician and sometimes filled in as an assistant on sessions when the assistants who were there were, you know, were booked or tired or whatever, you know. Yeah, that's good. It was great experience, um, you know. I and I thought for about fifteen minutes at, you know, seeing all these guys making great mixes and stuff that I would uh, maybe get into mixing, mm. and sort of realized that while I have a good ear for balance and um, good ears in general, I'm not the most Imaginative, um, or I'm not a big risk taker. Huh. It was sort of the same story with me being, you know, being a musician. I'm a good musician. I can read well. I can play well, but it's not inspired. And if you, you know, if you work with somebody who is a really inspired mix engineer, you know, this this is half of what makes the music. I recognized that I was a little too afraid to make these kind of drastic decisions that needed to be made in that process. Right. In the meantime, I had been offered a part time job as a quality control engineer for Sony Classical Productions. And, you know, I was just happy to do it. You know, there were a bunch of us on call, and, you know, on any given evening, you'd go in for four or five, six hours and listen to the masters that were submitted. In those days, we had everything on uh, 1630 tapes, so we had to make six copies for all the plants around the world. Listen back to all six copies, data check all six copies, and you know, not be busy with Facebook and you know all this sort of stuff uh, <laughs> at the same time. So it was a lot of intense listening and listening to stuff from different engineers and you know different types of classical music, obviously, and um, just the ability to sit down and listen without distractions and to begin to quantify what you're hearing, you know, was that little noise I heard a technical issue which should be solved or was it uh, something natural that occurred on the recording and I shouldn't bother rejecting all these masters and and tormenting the engineer uh, with it? Right. It's always better to have somebody ask and say, "Is this okay or is this not okay?" and right. that you go through the process to check it than that something goes out and a hundred thousand of that mistake get released on the world. So yeah. you have to take that risk you have to risk having your head bitten off and <laughs> you know and and do it. but you know with practice and with listening, you begin to be able to really quantify what you're hearing and the things that you feel are problems are probably truly problems and and should be resolved before they go out the door right. But that ability to sit and concentrate and listen and quantify what I was hearing, that was probably the job that is most responsible for my evolving into a mastering engineer. Um, I quite liked it and I was able to do it. And I was an assistant engineer eventually on classical recording sessions, which was amazing, you know, to... um, literally kneel at the feet of Placido Domingo because I was adjusting his headphone levels and stuff. I was, you know, on the, on the little headphone box at his feet <laughs> when he takes a breath and starts singing. I mean, that, you know, that's something I'll never forget. <laughs> so after evolving from QC into uh, assistant recording uh, engineer and editor, um, I also started doing some remastering work, which is, you know, going through the catalog first for Sony Classical, later for some of the other labels for Sony, and um, so probably this reissue work was the first mastering work that I did. That eventually evolved into what we call frontline mastering, so mastering for new productions, and um, I had a very early interest in surround sound and was quite fascinated with that. That's now evolved into immersive, of course. So ended up working on a number of really interesting productions just because there were not that many people who were interested in working in Surround at that early stage. And I think that sort of sums up my career path. I worked for Sony for 15 years. Um, I then got an offer to go work in Belgium and did. You know, just uh, things were going on in my life that I thought, okay, this is, this is a good moment to try something new, go somewhere else. I expected to be there for... I thought maybe two or three years. And then, of course, I'd go back to New York, which was the center of the universe, you know. Yeah. And uh, in the course of those three years, met a Dutch guy who, who was also working in Belgium. And then we ended up moving from Belgium to Holland and uh, becoming partners in a historic studio. And then two years ago, uh, in August, just about six months before COVID hit, we moved back to the United States. And here we are now, uh, so now I'm, now I'm at Valhalla Studios, New York in Auburn, New York.
0: That's a very good way of making a long story short. That's perfect. You hit all the points. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. you! It all caught my ear because I, I think it's so interesting that you um, kind of sampled everything and sort of analyzed, is this for me, before you found your path. I think that's really interesting because people maybe have this suspicion that they should just know what they want to do.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, it definitely wasn't the case, but I will say that things just sort of naturally evolved. I wouldn't say that it's pure luck or any, anything like that. I, I think that if you're honest with yourself, you know, you'll eventually find the right path. That being said, I will say that there are about a hundred times a day that I sit here and question whether this has been the right path. Wow, really? <laughs> There's some days I think, yeah, you know, a, a good old math and science career in a laboratory sounds really good right now, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think with any creative field that you work in, you know, you have you have your highs and lows. And um, mastering is interesting because there is a level of creativity involved in it but it's really about fostering the tone and the message of somebody else yeah so i can be creative in how i achieve that goal but i always have to be tuning in to the message and the intention of the artist it's not my message right. i am the messenger i am helping to convey that to the end listener and i want that message to come across as strong as possible so It's a lot of time spent trying to put myself in the position of the listener. How are they gonna receive this? And in the position of the artist, how do they intend to deliver this message? And I think with creative work that's like that, you're not necessarily free to do exactly what you want because you have to keep in mind other people's sensibilities. Um, It can take a lot out of you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the rewards are huge. Um, You feel like you've done a great job for somebody. And they love it, and the listeners love it, and it's all good. And then there are other times when it's a struggle, where maybe for personal reasons I'm having a hard time tuning into to this message. I'm I'm not quite getting what they want, or maybe there are technical issues. Uh, you know, I mean, any of us dealing with technology know how that can really bite you in the rear. Yeah. from time to time. <laughs> but um, I would say, in general, I have ended up in a field that that suits me well. So.
0: Oh, good. I think. Um- The sound world seems thoroughly rewarding, but also like there's a hell of a lot to learn. So I guess I'm wondering, when you first started with the reissues, what was the learning curve like? And also, how does that differ from mastering something kind of that's new?
1: Yeah, well, the reissue reissues actually, in a lot of ways, are more challenging because you Mm. have a lot more to be careful of the freedom in doing something new is that nobody's ever heard it before. So sure. you start with something, uh, there's a good chance that you're in direct communication with the people who have created it that allows you to make decisions, but it allows you to, uh, to change things as radically as they want to. Um, you can immediately get some feedback and ask some permission about trying new things and and that kind of thing without, uh, nobody as a listener has heard it before. So whatever it is that you create will be the standard for that album. Right Now, that is also quite intimidating in a certain way. It's like, you know, we're, we're setting the bar now for, for what this album will be for generations to come. And we can hope that people will be interested in generations to come. Right. Um, with reissues, you're dealing with material that, first of all, has proven itself long enough that somebody's interested in reissuing it. So it still has an audience. And usually the purpose of the reissue is not to completely rework the album, but to take advantage of the new technology that's available to make the best possible version of that original album. So there's a lot at stake. You know, First of all, clearly, it's a well-regarded album. If you've been asked to reissue it, somebody loved it in the first place, and probably quite a lot of people loved it. Also, you might be dealing in the, in the case where, where the artist is no longer around to communicate with. Um, True. While they may have an estate or somebody who is interested, these people will be also looking to preserve the integrity of, of those uh, original recordings. And you're dealing with the source material, which will presumably, you know, if you're doing this the right way and going back to original sources, you're dealing with older technology Fragile sources. Um, You know, these can be lacquers, these can be old tapes, um, you know, Mm -hmm. things that you have to be very careful with. So, what I loved about doing it was I got familiar with not just music, but technology that predated me by decades. Um, So, it was an amazing education as I worked. Plus, being taught the sensibilities through these generations of music. You know, what should this kind of music sound like? Uh, what should be our sonic goals for this? And, um, I found that really fascinating and trying to find the way to improve the listening experience for the end listener using the new technology, but paying respect and, um, Being aware of the beauty of the original is is really that tightrope walk that you perform when you're when you're working on reissues. Right.
0: Wow. So, like, who were you working under in that during that process?
1: A number of producers that worked for uh, for Legacy, the the label. Um, I did a lot of Broadway uh, cast recordings with DDA Deutsch. Uh, Michael Brooks did a lot of historic uh, reissues. Uh, Al Quaglieri, Bob Irwin. Bob Belden. There, you know, there were a, an amazing group of people, uh, Nedra OlsNeil, neal who worked for Legacy as producers who would farm this catalog. And I learned a lot of this starting at back at Sony Classical, where I also worked with a producer named Andrew Kasdan. And he was an engineer as well as a producer, but he had not stepped into the age of working on a digital workstation. So my first sessions were with him. He was an older gentleman even then. I would guess when I was working with him, he must have been about 70. Wow. So he knew... All of the older technology very comfortably and he he wasn't really far out of date i mean he you know he was very facile with computers and that kind of thing but he just he wasn't really interested in learning the ins and outs of uh, a digital workstation we were working on sonic solutions uh, in those days so he taught me a lot of the rest of it and um, we started working with digital consoles as well early in our work together and This whole digital console business was relatively new and connecting everything uh, was quite uh, cutting edge. So every day as that new room went up, there was an issue that had to be solved. So every morning we would come in, be ready to start at nine o'clock. And uh, by 10 o'clock, we might actually be working. And then I would have to give Mr. Kastin a report for what caused the delay. (laughs) And I will never forget his one rule was, yeah, if you've made a mistake, you know, fess up. And don't try to BS your way through it, you know, own up to it and don't ever make the same mistake twice. So there were times when it really wasn't me, you know, (laughs) there was an amazing technical team there. And, uh, you know, sometimes all four of them would be scratching their heads trying to solve the problem. That always made me feel really good. Yeah, <laughs> It's when they come in and go, oh, yeah, you had the mute button on that, you know, that you really feel the donkey ears uh, sort of <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> sprout out of your head. I would go in and report that I had been stupid for an hour and it took me that long to figure it out. And then we would move on and do our session.
0: Oh, my God. It, it just makes me so happy to hear about people's mistakes in the beginning of their career or even later in their career, because... I mean, I'm a student, so it's like uh, it's good to know that it's normal and it's expected.
1: That's actually something that I think is really important for people to know. And, you know, without getting too much on the gender soapbox or anything, I think it's something really important for young women in particular to know, or maybe not specifically young women, but people who tend to be a bit sensitive and introspective, you know, whatever gender identity that might embrace. And, the important thing to remember is that when you are new in any field, this isn't just audio, you will make mistakes and you will make those mistakes because you are young and inexperienced. You won't be making those mistakes because you're a girl. It doesn't mean that you're stupid. It doesn't mean that you're hopeless. It doesn't mean that you should choose a different field. You know, it means that you're young and inexperienced and how you, cope with those mistakes, what you take away from them and how you move forward will make the difference between continuing in in that field or not. I know that I'm very hard on myself and I still am and it takes a lot out of me. And I'm not saying that you should brush off your mistakes because obviously you can't keep making the same mistakes and, and you need to learn from them and you need to be hard on yourself in order to get better. On the other hand, you shouldn't let it cripple you. So don't let that self-doubt get inside your head and blow things apart from the inside out. You will face enough criticism from the outside world to be character building, you know, trust me. <laughs> yeah. So you have to, uh, you know, you have to try to foster that confidence in yourself and just the faith that the mistakes you're making are normal. The, the reason why uh, Andrew Kasdan was so patient with me in, you know, when I was young and stupid is because he had been there. He'd seen generations of engineers be there and grow and get through it. And we we're always new at something, you know, I'm now, um, God, I'm scratching my head with, uh, with data networking, audio networks, uh, for working in the new immersive formats and that kind of stuff. It makes my head hurt. It's a normal thing to make mistakes. It's normal to be, you know, when you're new at something, Watch somebody learn how to skateboard. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. At least audio is forgiving when. You- <laughs> yeah. At least your bones are intact, and <laughs> your bones are intact when you're learning. So yeah.
0: Yeah, that's this is very reassuring. I mean, to me personally, and I'm sure to anyone listening, I'm kind of curious uh, because you're working with an artist's intention. Do you remember a particularly interesting or colorful? Way an artist expressed their intention that you had to interpret and reflect in your mastering work.
1: Well, I would say oh, there there was kind of a an interesting story, um, mm-hmm. and and this is sort of a warning that um, certain terms are in the ear of the beholder. And as an audio person, very often you have to keep in mind the perspective of the person who is speaking to you in order to really understand what they're saying. So I worked on an album for an artist in Europe. And he and his band, uh, essentially a duo, were really big in the... 80s, like the mid 80s. Now, I wasn't in Europe then. I moved to Europe in about 2005, so about the time that I was in high school and college, these guys would have been really uh, popular in Belgium, particularly in, in the Benelux uh, market. So, they made a new album in I don't know. Let's call it 2006. I can't be sure about these these dates. But he came to me. They brought me the stuff they had mixed to analog tape because they wanted it to have the tape sound. So they told me they were looking for a vintage sound. Mm. So I get to work and I, I work on the album for the day, and I send the references, and I'm like, "Yeah, I got this. I nailed it. You know, I got this this nice, you know, kind of '60s uh, vibe. You know, taking advantage of the tape, and you know, not too high fi, but you know, nice and rich, and and all of this. And uh, the artist listened, and he comes back to me, and he said, "I think I get what you did, but." he said, I didn't mean vintage, like sixties. I meant vintage. I meant vintage me. <laughs> <laughs> so he meant vintage like the eighties, which has a very different sound than vintage sixties. Uh, so yeah. So I did that one over again and I thought, okay, note to self, when somebody throws out a term like vintage, maybe check what era, you know, this is referring to, <laughs> uh, for example, or, um, I worked on an album that was very acoustic, very intimate, Mm. primarily just acoustic guitar, a couple of uh, percussion instruments and uh, a man with a very compelling voice. So I kept it very acoustic, very, you know, very much in the vein that it was with, you know, a few adjustments to EQ and that kind of thing. Mm. And I thought, yeah, I've nailed this. And then I got the comment back from the producer, well, yes, it sounds very much like what it is, and we, we want it to be a little bit scary. Oh. And I thought, no, I don't quite get this. So I started playing with it, and instead of keeping this very purist approach, I did some some things with a limiter and, and that kind of thing. And I have to say, when I was done, it it sort of brought things a little closer, made something very natural, a bit unnatural. and. Made it more compelling. I would never have thought to go that way with that material myself. But after I got that feedback and I tried to get my head into what they were looking for, I got it. It, it made sense to me. I'm like, okay. And then I, then I thought it was very cool that they kind of had that vision from the very beginning. And yet delivered me something where they hadn't done it themselves. They wanted to leave me the ability to do it. Because... Wow. Now the, the tendency is for everybody to sort of smash everything and make it loud and, you know, and, and do that themselves. And that puts mastering engineers in a difficult position of kind of wishing they could undo some of that to maybe steer things in a slightly different direction with a, with a different focus. Mm. Do you work in Pro Tools or? I use Pro Tools as a playback machine usually, um, Mm. just because sometimes the sample rate that material comes in on is not the target sample rate for the release. Mm. And I also 99.9 times out of a hundred will want to, to work through my analog mastering gear Mm. because that gives me Um, some essential tools for the the sound that I'm looking for. So I will play back from Pro Tools at whatever sample rate the material is sent to me. And most of the time I will be going analog, and then I will sometimes go back to the same sample rate, or I might be going to a different sample rate depending on what the requested deliverables are for a project. And analog being the sort of universal sample rate converter in between makes that easy to do. And then I, I record in Pyramix and I deliver from Pyramix, which is a workstation from merging technologies. Mm-hmm. So I do use Pro Tools and I could potentially you know also record into Pro Tools, but there are some aspects of Pyramix that make it easier for me as a mastering engineer to deliver what I need to deliver. Um, it, it's certainly not the only mastering uh, workstation around, uh, but it's the one that I prefer.
0: Yeah. How long did it take you to like find, um, develop your approach, find the tools you like? Is it just something that kind of stuck for a while
1: or? Let's say I've been working in the industry for 30 years. So it's about 30 years and it's evolving every day. Uh, (laughs) I will say that this workflow, you know, with some modifications and some changing of tools as tools update and that kind of thing, I've been kind of doing this now since about 2005. So mm. th- this idea of the two workstations allowing, you know, for the the easy manner of dealing with multiple sample rates and and that kind of stuff, you know, with the analog gear in between. Again with, you know, getting into immersive and all the immersive formats and that kind of thing, workflows are changing as well. Yeah. So it's a ongoing development, shall we say. Right.
0: Okay, that kind of sparks my next question about how you have this interest in Surround sound, which is now immersive or evolving to immersive for like surround albums, because like surround films, I guess the rules are there about like where you put certain elements because you want people to still be able to look at the screen, but feel immersed in the world. Mm -hmm. How does it work for music? Like, is there rules about you put this instrument here always? because of this or?
1: I would say no. Um, I mean, certainly if there's a visual component, there has to be some correlation, you know, right. like if this is going to go with picture, mm-hmm. if it's say with an orchestra, you know, if the violins are on the left and the bases are on the right, you right. Know, which is mostly where they sit, you know, then it's going to make a lot more sense to people if, if what they see and what they hear, uh, match up. So if there are general guidelines, if there are, if there is a convention, for example, as with, Concert orchestra uh, seating—you're probably not going to depart from that too much, unless you've recorded it departing from that, you know. And mm-hmm. and a lot of recordings for immersive—they begin at the very beginning of the process to make these kind of decisions. If you're going to be releasing something in immersive, maybe you want to seat the orchestra in the round, you know. May, maybe you seat the orchestra differently. Um, Morten Lindbergh from 2L Productions in uh, Norway does some absolutely breathtaking classical uh, recordings and new classical recordings. And he works very much with the composers and the orchestras and the conductors to figure out how are we going to seat people uh, around us, because then then you can have the freedom to have things in un- in non-traditional positions and still have them make sense, because all of the crosstalk from the microphones and that kind of stuff, and what gets conveyed will make sense. You won't have right. crazy phase issues and that kind of stuff. Without getting too technical about it, mm. with uh, with music that's entirely artificial, like uh, electronic dance music or what have you, if there is no natural environment, um, you can kind of do what you want, you know. And I think that's the beauty of the format. You can make it as flashy and fancy and you know, fly things around, uh, you know, if you want to. Or you can make it as simple and compelling as um, I worked on a Lori Lieberman recording, where it was her and her acoustic guitar and a cello. And we don't fly any of them around. She just, you know, she she sings, and the instruments are there, and it's gorgeous, and it's all around you, and you feel like you're in that space. It feels very natural, even though it's being created, you know, artificially by listening on the on the speakers or in some cases in, in the headphones, or you can do something, you know, like I said, with this sort of electronic music where there is no natural environment that you have to be concerned with. And then, you know, you can do whatever you want. You know, you can flip things around, you can move things around, you can run them around through space. The only important thing is that it still serves the music. Um, it's really easy when we work with a lot of technology to let the tail wag the dog and the technology starts determining, you know, what we do. Oh, this would be fun and this would be great, you know, yeah. uh, but it doesn't necessarily convey the message of the music best. Right. So, for that reason there are probably some guidelines. You know, you wouldn't typically put the kick drum up in the ceiling and the, you know, the sparkly percussion and the harp down by the floor, you know. Right. You wouldn't typically fly the bass around or something like that, you know. So there will be certain things that, you know, just for the sake of getting the message of the music across and letting the, you know, the the human brain really comprehend the music rather than just be wowed by the technology, you you will probably just naturally follow certain guidelines.
0: Right. Yeah, I know that makes a lot of sense. So you're particularly interested And I guess you have been for a while interested in this, how immersive music can be. Why? Why does that draw your interest? And like, what is your hope for the future in that regard and how it affects your mastering?
1: I can't say what got me excited about it other than to say that it just sounded cool. You know, it's just a cool experience, you know, um, (laughs) we experience sound in three dimensions all the time. And that is what immersive audio is. We're just trying to represent, you know, a a sonic event, a musical event in my particular case, in a three-dimensional environment, the way that we hear naturally. So, you know, we've all gotten used to listening, you know, in mono and stereo and... our brains have learned to make a pretty good translation of, of that into some kind of a 3D image that, that we accept and feel immersed in, but we're not truly immersed in it. And that's the cool thing with, you know, first it was surround where, and when we're talking about surround, we're talking about around you on one level. So, you know, let's call it ear level and you've traditional surround is 5.1. So five speakers around you, three in the front, two in the back and an lfe and now with immersive we're adding height to that so you know there can be depending on the format there can be any number of speakers you know above and around you and uh, uh the sony format also has uh, speakers lower so below the, the floor because that is represented in a headphone uh, kind of environment so um the representation of music in this, to keep using the word immersive, in this immersive manner, just for me was very exciting, um, and um, there just wasn't any reason not to to try working in it. You know, um, I was fortunate enough to be working for Sony Music Studios. Then there was a great tech department there. There was, you know, plenty of equipment there every, you know, I had the facility uh, and and the interest to do it and and the support of management and the the studio team there to be able to do it. And it just excited me, you know, and even after I left uh, Sony and was working more in the, you know, a more practical world, you know, no longer on salary, having to earn my keep uh, kind of thing. still the what I learned and how I'd gotten started uh, I could build on that and um, it's just exciting you know with with any new technology, uh, there are real teething pains, uh, what's going on right now with um, people getting involved in Atmos, Dolby Atmos for music production. Uh, there's Oro 3D, which is a channel and object-based, but began as a channel-based format when I was introduced to it. Mm. Um, there is the Sony 360 format, which is at the moment entirely a uh, headphone format, but it's based on a particular speaker arrangement. Right. You know, With all of this, you are using new software. Uh, object-based uh, formats require... A lot more head scratching on the mastering side of things uh, to try to come up with a workflow that allows you to still work in a musical fashion. Right. Technology makes everything possible, but we can't lose sight of the music, you know, in the first place. And that is sort of the challenge right now with the object-based formats. Mm. But when when you get great results, and you know, and you can sit back and listen to what you've done, and just you just go wow you know and you get the the goosebumps then um you know that that's why I took an interest in it and that's why I do it
0: wow that's it's gonna be exciting to see like those few huge albums like the landmark albums that are gonna represent like this kind of when we get over the teething pains when someone takes us out (laughs) of it and it's gonna be that (laughs) album or two that's just like people are gonna be like holy crap where has this been
1: Yeah, as new artists are conceiving of their material with, you know, with these immersive soundscapes in mind, then the technology and the music are working absolutely, you know, all oars are rowing in the same direction and you get, you can get some amazing uh, sonic experiences, musical experiences from that.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting. Darcy, what does... um... What is like a day at work or like a week at work look like for you? Like when you're, for example, taking on some new project, what would that look like?
1: Well, up until school went back in session, you, there was just a sheer panic uh, just about every day uh, trying to get my 10 year old through his school day um, and get any work done. But blissfully, we're, you know, we are on the other side of that. And in, in any case, it's summer. So now a typical day looks a little bit more like it used to. Um, right. Basically, before a session starts, there's a lot of communication that has to happen with the people involved. Most of my sessions are still not attended. I've had one attended session now in two years. That was a couple weeks ago. And boy, did that feel strange. Yeah. Um, you know whether I'm working at a distance, you know, because of pure geography or because of uh, COVID restrictions or what have you, a lot of communication has to happen beforehand. I'm not a mastering engineer who enjoys the, you know, send me your stuff through this website, send me your credit card number, you know, give me the track listing, and you know, I'll send something back to you. Right. I need to have some some dialogue, whether that's written or uh, via. Zoom or something or telephone call or what have you, doesn't really matter, but I need to understand the project a bit. Mm. So first there would be this communication, of course, setting up the parameters of of the project, you know, agreeing on a budget for the project. You have to get this stuff out of the way. I hate dealing with money, um, but I still, you know, it's a necessary part of the business. So um, that has to be clear to everybody uh, up front so that there are no unpleasant surprises and discussions uh, later on. but once all of that's out of the way you can be thinking about the creative side of things. When the session starts I you know the creative glamorous side of mastering is probably only half or maybe a third of the work you know this communication coming up with a workflow for the project, downloading files, getting your system set up, uh, so when I have the files uh, in my Pro Tools system which I use for playback, you know I I'd like to work in album order. I'd like to listen a bit and figure out you know what's the beginning, middle end, and end of the story. Mm. I need to figure out you know where, where I think I want to go and start working in that direction. and then then I'll start experimenting with with the gear to figure out, you know, okay, am I getting what I want? Will I be able to achieve something coherent? For the entire album, you know, I talk a lot about albums. I do singles also, but I really enjoy working on albums. So right. most of what I'm talking about would be an album workflow. And then, um, yeah, once I think I've got something that's working, I will, um, you know, I'll I'll start running through the songs, and each song gets adjusted separately, but paying in mind the the songs that have been adjusted before that, you know, mm-hmm. which is why I like to work in album order whenever possible. If somebody later decides after they hear it that Mo well, maybe swapping these two songs around would make the album flow better, that doesn't usually change the world. But I like to have an idea when I start, you know, what the concept is for the album, how how the artist is seeing this flow from start to finish. So allow each song to shine in the way that it needs to shine, but still sound like it belongs to a coherent work. Right, and then. Um, Probably a good, you know, if I'm working on a typical album of 10 to 12 songs, um, I would say that's about, it's a good six or seven hours of of work, you know, really paying attention, really getting into the details, really, you know, doing some experiments. The first song might take two hours, you know, the next song will be faster, and then they will go faster, you know, after that, as I, A, have something to compare to, and B, have kind of figured out that whole... The, the workflow um right and then my favorite part is putting the album together so i you know i now have these separate tracks and uh, then i hang those together in the uh, in the workstation that i've recorded into and you know that's where i can set the pauses and see if there's any interesting way to make the transitions and that kind of thing if there's one drawback to playlists it's that uh that people are not making the kinds of cool transitions from one song to the next that they totally. used to do. That I find such a shame uh, because mm-hmm. of course they will get pulled apart and you'll have some bizarre remnant on the, of a crossfade at the end of one track and something bizarre at the beginning of the next track. Uh, but my feeling is that's the risk the listener takes when they don't listen to your whole album, yeah. which is easy to say because it, it's not my album and it's not my name going on it. So, um, but it, that's one aspect of the way we are listening now with streaming that I find a bit of shame, yeah. but having hung it all together, then it's time to generate the actual masters. And this is where we get into the glorified secretarial aspect of mastering. So the, the fun work with the EQs and getting the sounds and all of that is done, but the job is not over. Um, it's about adding, you know, track IDs and, and, and file divisions and adding ISRC codes and then rendering those out in whatever file formats, uh, whatever master formats are needed for, uh, you know, for the pressing plans, for vinyl cutting, for digital distribution, and and that kind of thing. And then quality control is, um, which is where I started, right? So, so long ago. <laughs> You're good at that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, is listening back to all of those masters. So um, every time you generate a new set of files, there's the potential. That there's a bad sector on the hard drive that it gets written to, or you know um, any number of things that can can happen that could corrupt that data in a way that would be audible. Right. So each master should be listened to from start to finish uh, to check that nothing has happened in that process, because anything generated from those masters further downstream would also contain any of those errors. So. Um, that generation of masters and QC is the really is sort of non-glamorous side of, uh, not not that any of it's particularly glamorous. But. It's
0: glamorous is <laughs> a compression. Oh my god! <laughs> don't get me started.
1: <laughs> yeah, but that, uh, that that part of it, you know, you can make the best sounding record ever if you don't get it to the pressing plants or or for digital distribution in a in a way that is not broken. Then. Um, nobody's ever going to work with you again they're never going to hear that album to, in the beautiful way that you created it so that aspect of the job is just as important as uh, totally yeah as being good at the creative side of it
0: yeah that's enlightening i think a lot of people just think the artist recorded it someone did a quick mix and then they hear it they don't realize there's a lot of work that goes into the music we listen to in a playlist there's- shame on us <laughs> shame on us Oh, this is really fun. And we're coming up on our um, the time limit where the editor will wring my neck for... Okay. <laughs> um, but I like to always kind of end, um, I know you talked about the the young and stupid advice, which was fantastic and very um, important to hear. But do you have any um, big zinger, all-encompassing advice that you would give to someone considering this career?
1: Uh, don't do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> run. I'm tra- I'm, I run, run. There's got to be something else. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> No, um, I think I would go, if I'm going to give advice, because I I will say, you know, I'm, I don't feel well equipped to be giving people big advice on how to run their lives because, you know, I'm sorting mine out on a daily basis. What I can say for aspiring engineers and even, you know, experienced engineers who may have realized this along the line, um, it's not about the gear. It's about the music. Or, you know, if, if you're not working on music, it's still about getting the message across. That you know, the the uh, the technology is a means to deliver a message, and it's so easy for us to focus on the technology and to focus on uh, the bells and whistles and the flashing lights and that kind of thing. And I think it's very important for us to remember. That music is very personal. That these messages in in all types of media that people are trying to deliver is is very personal. And don't let the gear get in the way. Don't let the gear dictate the message. Don't let um, every piece of gear you put in your signal path potentially creates distance between the artist and the end listener. Conversely, if something needs to be there to to promote the message, um, that needs to be there as well. And I think the role of the engineer is really to figure out what needs to be there, You know, what needs to change, and what needs to not change, what needs to be preserved in order for the message from the artist to reach the listener. And I think twice before I put any piece of gear in my chain, is it doing something to move the message forward? Is it doing something to strengthen the connection between the artist and the listener, or is it in some way interfering with that direct connection? And I think if we all keep that in mind, when we're working, we will make better sonic decisions. Um, you know, Rather than letting the tail wag the dog, rather than letting the gear dictate how we do things, we will let the message dictate how we get there and make that path between uh, artist and listener as short as possible.
0: Wow. Wonderfully said. That's a, that's great advice. I, uh, I just want to promote really quick, um, two really good resources that I checked out for talking to you. Uh, one of them was kind of more focusing on mastering, um, like, and actually the process. So that's the mastering process with Darcy Proper. That was a, a little excerpt of a seminar you did with Michelle, uh, Pettinato.
1: Oh yeah. So that was
0: wonderful. That's on the Soundgirls YouTube channel. And uh, Jack Galindo did a interview and profile on you called uh, "When Music and Science Collide," and that's available at uh, Soundgirls.org. And that I thought was more kind of personal, covering your journey and you know how you got to where you are now. So I uh, thought those are really great resources. And I really recommend them.
1: Yeah, both both Michelle and Jet did uh, you know did me a huge service uh, with uh, w- with both of those. I mean, Michelle is such an amazing powerhouse in in the live sound industry, and and uh, yeah, as it turns out, such an amazing educator and inspiration uh, as well. And uh, Jet is a very talented uh, engineer, also mastering engineer, and um, it was just lovely to talk to. And we talked for so long. She had so much information that she had to sort through to, to come up with something that made me sound intelligent. And I thank her for, <laughs> for all of her efforts <laughs> on that behalf.
0: Oh, Darcy, this is so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, it was a blast. It was super enlightening. And you're great. Thank you.
1: It's been a pleasure to meet you. And uh, this has been really a great time. So and thank you for inviting me. My pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Soundgirls Podcast. Our mission is to create a community for women in audio and music production, providing the tools, knowledge, and support to further their careers. Check out soundgirls.org for more information. Applications are now open for the Soundgirls Scholarships of 2021, and we have four different scholarships available. The deadline for all scholarship applications is July 30th at 12am Pacific Daylight Time. The SoundGirls Board will review essays and will notify the winners via email in August. For more information on these scholarship opportunities, check out soundgirls.org/soundgirls-scholarships-2021.